we're going to start things off talking about homelessness, something that uh, has been a, a hot topic in our city in the past weeks, months, and it continues to be. And uh, here to now walk us through some of what's going on is Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. Thanks so much uh, for being with us today, um, uh, Councillor Boyle. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Now, you have uh, submitted a, a motion about single residency occupants, single resident occupancy buildings. Yeah, so it's actually specifically focused on the temporary modular housing buildings, which are different from SROs in Vancouver. The temporary modular housing buildings um, are, we have hundreds of them, about 750 in Vancouver, um, and they are good, dignified units. Often we hear about SROs in the downtown east side um, and hear about the challenges of the buildings aging and not being in good shape, washrooms breaking down and, and buildings overheating and whatnot. These temporary modular housing units um, uh, have heating. They have, like I said, they have washrooms. They're really good, uh, safe, secure, dignified housing um, and a really important part of the continuum of housing that helps people move out of homelessness and, and stay housed and uh, and take care of their health needs and, and all of those things. So they're a really important um, part of our uh, housing and homelessness solutions in Vancouver. And the motion I have coming to council next week is to renew the leases and, and find new sites when they might need to move to make sure that we're not losing these uh, really important, well-used uh, housing units. Yeah, yeah. I think we've seen them around the city of Vancouver. Where where would I have seen them? I'm pretty sure that I, I know exactly where these are, but where, where would they be around the city of Vancouver? Great question. I'm sure you have, and I'm sure many of the listeners have too. They ha- the buildings have a bit of a distinctive look, and they're actually spread in neighborhoods across Vancouver. There's a, a couple downtown, and in the downtown east side, there's a couple in Olympic Village, a couple... Um, over near uh, Women's and Children's Hospital. Um, So a a number of locations, most of them are on public city-owned land. A few of them are on private land. And the temporary part of the buildings is just the land use. So these are buildings that are constructed to the the regular um, building code. They're they're in good shape. They're well built. They they feel good to be in. I can tell you, I've visited a couple and, and appreciated having tours, um, and they would last for as long as any other building. Um, the temporary piece is just that they're often on sites where, um, if and when we have senior government funding, we could build more units. The temporary modular buildings are typically only three stories tall, and we could build a more social and supportive housing on those sites, uh, a taller building when possible. So they're temporary until we can build permanent housing. Right. And is the concern that in a city where real estate is out of control and profitability seems to get the last word too often, is the concern that a lot of the space where these are, we're going to lose that space to um, revenue generating buildings and businesses and, and development? Is that the concern? 
A bit of that, though, you know, like I said, because a number of them are on city-owned property, um, in most cases, what should happen is that uh, when they get moved, it's because we're building permanent social and supportive housing and more of it. Uh, And that's the plan for a number of sites. Um, But that takes a while. We know, uh, unfortunately, it, it takes longer than I wish that it did. And a number of the leases for these temporary modular buildings come up for renewal in the next five years. That, of course, creates a lot of uncertainty for tenants, for housing providers, for communities. Uh, I'd like to see us proactively renewing and extending those leases until permanent social housing is ready to be built. And on the sites where we know there are plans to rebuild and relocate, that we be uh, planning ahead and looking for new locations to move that temporary modular housing to. So the the um, the next case of that is two temporary modular housing buildings at Larwell Park, which is um, downtown where the new art gallery will be built. We've known for a long time that the art gallery will need that space and um so in situations like that, I would like us to be keeping the housing in place as long as we can and then having a place where we can move them so we're not seeing a, a net decrease in these good dignified housing units because when we lose supportive housing, um, people end up on the street, people end up in encampments. It's much worse for, for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk um, a bit about how modular housing like this helps people transition um, out of homelessness and into more dignified living? Uh, do they move on from modular housing or what happens after? Is it is it considered uh, permanent for the people who are in those units or is the idea to, to move on at a certain point and um, open that unit up for someone else? You know, it's a whole mix. So it it really is an important piece of people being able to get back on their feet. Of course, having uh, a safe, secure place to sleep and to be is an important piece of of health care, of addressing mental health challenges, um, reconnecting with community and family. So the stories that we hear of people who have been able to move Uh, off the street or out of parks and into temporary modular housing are really incredible in terms of what it's meant for uh, for their health and stability. There are people who will stay uh, in that housing unit for many years um, and other people who will uh, who will be there kind of as a step toward other housing. Maybe it's because they are able to find a job and find uh, find housing in the market or reconnect with and move back in with family or they're in temporary modular housing um, and they're on the list for, say, family-sized housing to, uh, to reconnect with their children or, you know, a whole range of circumstances that people find themselves in. And, um, and for people all along that spectrum, temporary modular housing is a piece of getting back on their feet. So uh, a, a lot of, uh, a lot of it, you know, it, it really moving and inspiring stories that this housing is, uh, is serving to support people.
Scott Chance in for Jill Bennett today. Uh, we're continuing with my guests, Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. And uh, thanks for being with us, Christine. I wanted to ask you, uh, I saw a story that um, TransLink has installed, and I, I want to make sure I get this right. It's a mosquito siren at the Main Street Science World SkyTrain station. And there's some concern that they've put this there. They're calling it for the safety of riders and staff. But there's some concern that the actual intention of having this there is to displace homeless people. Uh, Yes, and um, uh, I'm going to try not to get too worked up about this. I I, I was incredibly angry to see this in place. It's a... um, my understanding of it is that it's a form of um, of what gets talked about as hostile architecture. You know, it, it, it's used to discourage people from loitering for too long. Um, I will say, to TransLink's credit, um, that I understand they have uh, turned it off and um, they're reviewing effectiveness and, and policies, uh, but but don't have a specific plan to turn it back on. I'm glad to hear that because I, I think it's incredibly important that our public transportation system be safe and welcoming for everyone. Um, and this type of approach is not the answer, you know, including because it is punitive to transit riders. Um, there are lots of people who can, can move through a SkyTrain station quickly, um, but there are lots of other people who are who are moving very slow, and I can tell you, as a parent who's uh, who uses transit a lot and has dragged a toddler through the system, um, we are spending some time in those stations as as we try to, you know, get on or off a train. Um, similar to seniors who who will often come in and sit down and take a break uh, while they wait for their ride, you know. People gather in these spaces. Transit should be a good, safe, and pleasant experience. That's how we get more people uh, riding transit, and um, and this type of response is uh, is I think harmful to those goals. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad TransLink has turned it off, and I uh, I hope we don't. Uh, see it back on at Main Street or in other locations. Yeah, one of the things that was said was it's it's there to theoretically to deter people from gathering. And one of my questions is, what's wrong with people gathering? Uh, I have the same question. <laughs> uh, you know, particularly just as a as a big fan of public transportation. I know that makes me sound like just a giant nerd, but. Um, like I said, we want people to use and enjoy the public transportation system. Um, people will gather. People take transit in groups. People wait for a while at, at busy stops during busy times after a game or a show or whatnot. You know, to the extent that this type of solution um, or, or or mechanism is an attempt to prevent people who are homeless from uh, taking refuge in the station again, I think that that's the wrong approach, um, and it's on all of us, including the city, to be making sure people have places to safely gather to to stay out of the rain. Um, you know, relates to my ongoing advocacy for safe and supportive housing. People need places to go when it's pouring rain or when it's smoky or smoking hot like we're 
um, seeing already this summer. So uh, it, it's a it's a broader failure on all of us if the only place they have to go is SkyTrain stations. Um, but we shouldn't be making those places unwelcoming. Right. And do you know or can you speak to, um, has there been uh, a concern around public safety because of homeless people sort of gathering there or doing damage? Like, is there any actual tangible evidence that that causes uh, riders to be unsafe? Not, not that, no evidence that I have seen. No, and, and broadly what we know is that people who are homeless are, um, are more likely to be the victims of crime than far more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime. Um, so, you know, and all sorts of people may seek, uh, you know, may be in the SkyTrain station for a break and escape from the weather. Again, I hear this from seniors across the city because there aren't enough um, public benches around the city. These types of places People gather. People come to sit down and take a break. So um, we should we should be including that as part of the service that our transit system provides. It is a place for people to um, to meet as they're getting from one place to another, uh, and um, and find ways, uh, including benches, um, I- including the kind of art that TransLink has been putting at more stations uh, t- to make them welcoming. Hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned quickly one one other thing. I think you used the term aggressive architecture. Is that correct? Uh, the term that gets used is hostile ah, architecture. Right. And, 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 you know, so um, your your listeners may be able to picture uh, sometimes it's used in the design of benches or curbs where there's uh, dividers or bumps put in so that somebody can't lie down to rest or wouldn't want to stay and sit there for too long. Um I mean, overall, there's a whole range of forms of hostile architecture, and I don't like any of them um, because I want our public spaces to be uh, safe and welcoming for everyone. Yeah, even the idea of something, calling it hostile and architecture, using those words together, it just seems a little bit not us, you know, I, I, yeah, it just it feels gross to me as well. Uh, Christine, yeah. Boyle, Christine Boyle, Vancouver City Councilor, thank you so much for that. We'll watch it and uh, be sure to update people if it does get turned on and what effect that has. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Happy to join anytime. Scott Schantz in for Jill Bennett. You can email me, Scott, at CKNW. You can call us, 604-280-9898, or the Buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. You can text that as well, 604-331-BUZZ. Are you a Twitter user? Have you been a Twitter user and maybe abandoned it since things have changed so drastically, uh, since Elon Musk took over? Well, things are going to get even more crazy in the Twitter, social media, online world world because today is the launch of Threads. If you haven't heard of Threads, this is Facebook's answer 
to Twitter. They've been looking to do this for a long time, and now seems like the right time because Mark Zuckerberg has launched this. It's going to integrate with Instagram. I'm not exactly sure how that works. Uh, and we're going to discuss it here uh, with a guest of mine in just a second. But I'd love to know, ha- has this um, happened to you? Have you left Twitter? Do you intend to leave Twitter? And are you downloading threads? It's been available in the App Store for a few days. Lots of people have been downloading it. I'm actually trying to download it right now, uh, and it just seems like it's taking forever. And I'm not sure if that's maybe because everyone is trying to download this now. But um, the thought is that this could be the actual first website to affect Twitter and to, br- sorry, the first social media site to affect and to bring down Twitter. And here now to help me uh, understand and explain to us how this could all go down is Luke Lentz. He's the CEO of High Key Enterprises. They do all things social media. They're experts in that field, branding, uh, social contracts, all that type of thing. Uh, good m- afternoon, Luke. Thanks for being with us today. <laughs> Yeah, good afternoon. Thanks for having me on here. Looking forward to talking about this. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about threads. Is this is this going to be another one of these things like Google Plus that just disappears in a few months, or is it an actual real credible threat to Twitter? Yeah, so uh, threads just launched last night, uh, and it was kind of like a secretive launch. Like It hasn't been anticipated over months, and I think that they strategically planned this launch around uh, some things that weren't going so well for Twitter being released in terms of the big push with Twitter Blue, and then uh, also how Twitter's restricting the amount of uh, tweets that uh, non-verified users can load on a daily basis. I, I personally think that Threads is going to stay around for the long run, and this is a legitimate competitor uh, to Twitter, and they should be very, very scared uh, unless they make some huge changes in the future. Yeah, what do you think is driving people away from Twitter? I know you mentioned you know, the Twitter Blue, which you have to pay for, and then, yeah, this one was actually a big one for me, too. The, you could only view 600 tweets, and then they would stop your Twitter feed? You wouldn't get any, any updates for the next 24 hours or something like that? Yeah, for non-verified uh, Twitter, like people who aren't subscribed to Twitter Blue, it's around 600 tweets that uh, after you load that on a daily basis, they basically stop allowing you to load new pieces of content. And then for Twitter Blue subscribers, it limits it to 10,000 per day right now. But th- that's one of the elements that's deterring people from Twitter. They still have over 300 million daily active users. Uh, so they, they still have a significant user base, even though They've lost 30 million since uh, Musk has taken over ownership in 2022. Yeah, okay, I was going to ask you about that. So it's down about 10%. Um, so is it just those things, or because you hear people saying things like, uh, you know, Twitter is a cesspool and it's so political and all that stuff. Now, is it <laughs> is Twitter like attracting that type of content, and will Threads look like that as well? You think? Yeah, I think what's happened is ever since Musk has taken over uh, Twitter, he's been uh, really wanting Twitter to be like a town hall in terms of the aspect and element of free speech. And he was very open about how he believes every other social media platform is extremely censored and doesn't allow for free speech, like banning accounts. That's why Twitter and and Musk uh, reinstated some of the previous accounts that were banned before he took over ownership. And so I think that's an element that uh, <laughs> goes for the quote-unquote like cesspool and uh, d- definitely deters some users in terms of the content that's being posted on there now that could be a bit different than 
before Musk t- took over ownership. That was also a huge role in terms of why major advertisers of Twitter left because of the uncertainty in terms of the content that was being published on a daily basis. Yeah, it's a free speech and it's a you know open forum town square, but only up to 600 tweets. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was that was sort of my take when when he did that. You know, I was like, oh, it's similar to here's a newspaper where all the information is published. But once you read, you know, half the pages, you have to stop and you don't get to read the rest of it. <laughs> is that is that accurate? Is what I'm saying? Yeah, accurate? It's super interesting. You know, so okay. yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it, it's it's pushing them into the subscription model. Yeah. And so how is how is threads? Let's talk about this for a second. How is it going to integrate with Instagram and maybe even Facebook as well? Because it's all the same company, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Meta itself owns Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp even, that most people actually don't know about. And then now uh, has just launched threads. And there, there was a lot of an, uh, anticipation over the past week in terms of how it was going to be launched in connection with those other applications. But uh, as we saw when I signed up for it last night, it's directly connected with Instagram. And so you actually can't make a profile unless you have an Instagram profile. And so the first thing it asks you is to connect your Instagram profile. And then once you connect your Instagram profile, it says, would you like to follow every single person that you're currently following on Instagram? And so what it does is it directly correlates all of your followers from Instagram. So as they sign up for Threads accounts, like as your followers sign up for a Threads account, then those followers are translating over, which is massive for like huge content creators or like people who didn't get into the microblogging space because the hardest thing of getting into a social media platform that aren't connected with one another is that you don't take your followers, don't take your engagement with you. And so it's like starting up from ground zero. So like someone like myself, I never got big on Twitter. I, so I always felt like I was outside the click, but on Instagram, I have over a million followers. And so when I signed up for threads, like I'm currently getting thousands of followers per, per hour right now, as people are signing up for threads accounts. And so uh, I think it's huge because it's going to get people like me into microblogging, which I think is an amazing aspect. Yeah, it's really interesting. That's an element that I hadn't considered for sure. It's, you'll just sign up and immediately have you know thousands or, in your case, millions of followers. But how about this? Because this is all meta, as you mentioned. Is there any concern that, okay, you know, we've talked about Elon Musk a bit. Mark Zuckerberg, he's kind of trying to position himself, you know, against Elon in this. And we know there's talk of them having this cage match or whatever they're going to do. But is there concern in your mind? It's like <laughs> he owns Facebook. Now he owns Instagram. If he takes down Twitter, he's going to own that as well. Is there some concern about monopolization there? 100%. Yeah. So, like, even though I'm super excited for threads in the aspect of, me getting into personally like the microblogging side of things and I'm for sure going to be using threads is that it definitely poses a threat and it's definitely headed in that direction of complete monopolization over over the over social media and that's super super concerning in terms of if you look at social media it's the main way uh the younger generation and like a lot of people are consuming content on a day-to-day basis and forming their viewpoints of life, forming their uh, political beliefs, a lot of that. And so when one company has complete ownership and monopolization over an industry like social media, it's very scary in terms of what that could mean in terms of uh, pushing their own viewpoints in a certain direction. 
and pushing that on their entire audience. It's Luke Lentz from High Key Enterprises on Threads. Okay, just quickly, Lentz, who uh, who are you taking in the cage match? Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk? <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking Mark Zuckerberg. I've seen some of his jujitsu, and uh, <laughs> seems like a big threat. Scott Chance in for Jill Bennett just after one o'clock on your Thursday afternoon. And we're going to talk about nuclear power. Obviously, energy and climate and all of those things are hot topics as we are in a huge heat wave here. And Ontario is currently entering into consultations and talks and discussions about building a nuclear power plant, a big one in that province. Here in BC, we don't have any. Canada has four altogether. And to join me now to unpack all things nuclear energy, should we, shouldn't we, why and why not, is climate change and anti-pollution activist and president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, Chris Kiefer. Thanks for being here, Chris. Hi there, Scott. It's, uh, it's great to be on the show. Great to have you. So, uh, are you for or against the idea of a giant new nuclear power plant in Ontario? I am for this uh, new large plant. I think it's, uh, it's very exciting news. Um, here in Ontario, uh, we share the privilege with BC, Quebec, and Manitoba of being an ultra-low carbon grid. Uh, we, of course, have Niagara Falls, but we, we quickly outgrew our hydroelectric resources and built coal. Luckily, we built a whole bunch of nuclear plants. We're able to phase coal completely off our grid. Um, but times are changing, and we need even more electricity, obviously, as we electrify the economy to uh, decarbonize. Um, even British Columbia and Quebec are starting to outgrow their britches. So um, I think Ontario's leading here, but um, uh, be wise for BC to reevaluate its ban on nuclear energy. Hmm. Why do you think that people are weary of nuclear energy? Oh, man. I mean, it makes for great drama. I don't know if people saw the HBO series on Chernobyl. Um, it's, uh, it really occupies people's imaginations. And I think for you know, very real reasons, um, people that, that lived through that Cold War period, like my father doing duck and cover exercises under, under their desks at school, um, that fear of nuclear weapons uh, translates uh, very quickly over to the peaceful use of the technology, um, nuclear power. Um, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I think times are changing and there's, you know, an emerging generation of younger activists um, who maybe 30 years ago would have been anti-nuclear activists who are now fighting for um, more nuclear energy because of um, its climate benefits, its air pollution benefits, uh, even medical isotopes. And most people don't know that. But here in Ontario, we produce uh, a gobsmacking amount of the medical isotope cobalt-60, which is used to sterilize 40 percent of the world's single-use medical instruments, um, that's something that touches uh, upon my career as a, as a medical doctor. So um, lots of interesting new reasons to reevaluate the technology. Um, of course, it's a complex one, um, and it needs careful study. Um, but I think when you compare it to other energy resources, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great pairing, for instance, with hydroelectricity. Yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, I know so little about it, I think, like so many other people. And that's why I'm excited to, to hear about it, because a lot of people that you, are sort of in the media and on podcasts and that type of thing, like you mentioned, are kind of bringing up the idea of nuclear power as, hey, as we're concerned about climate change, like we should be, this is an option that we should be looking at a lot more. Now, why is, or maybe if you can explain how, like, or maybe even how much cleaner nuclear energy is than the alternatives that we have. 
Yeah, so I mean, we need to look at life cycle emission studies, and that includes everything from the mining right up to building the power plants um, and the waste stream. And, and you know, we can make comparisons to solar, to wind, to hydro. Uh, nuclear, according to the IPCC, the, the world's foremost um, climate body, has uh, amongst the lowest life cycle emissions. And a more recent study coming out of the uh, out of the UN um, uh, UN Economic Council for Europe shows it has, in fact, the lowest life cycle emissions of any source. It's about half that of hydro. Um, I mean, we're talking about tiny amounts of emissions for each of those two technologies. But people would be surprised to know that it's you know five to ten times lower emissions than solar. Um, but that's because you need to use a lot of coal mostly, and mostly that's done in China, um, to synthesize polysilicon. Um, it's about as electricity hungry as aluminum manufacturing is. So, um, you know, to consider any one thing in isolation is a mistake. But what we need to do is really identify what our goals are. And if our goals are ultra low emissions, if we want to electrify everything, we have to make sure that we do that with ultra reliable electricity. So I'm a medical doctor. I work at a hospital. Um, I take it quite seriously, this idea of, of uh, fighting climate change and, and moving towards an electrified economy. But that means that our houses are, are heated and cooled with heat pumps, it means that we're driving electric vehicles, it means that all of our infrastructure doesn't have fossil fuel backup. And so you need a really reliable system underpinning that. And that's what nuclear offers us. And because Canada developed its own um, reactor technology that can do, um, we are able to recycle all of the benefit of any investment we make in nuclear. And here in Ontario, when we spend a dollar um, on CANDU, we get a dollar forty back in economic activity. And so even, uh, you know, for the NDP in BC, there's a strong, strong case um, for, for the labor benefits. We talk a lot about a just transition for, for fossil fuel workers. Well, you know, we did that in Ontario, moving coal workers over to nuclear to better paying jobs um, in much safer working environments. Um, so, you know, the more you look into nuclear, the more surprises there are in that in that setting. But at this announcement, a lot of union stewards are there saying, hey, you know, this technology has looked after my family for the last 50 years. Um, I'm the third generation person working, you know, in candy reactors um, and very, very grateful for the kind of economic prosperity they, they bring and, and for the strong labor culture that they nurture. Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot of information, like you mentioned there. But <laughs> even like you say, just speaking with you, I'm surprised to learn um, some of this stuff. And it seems so positive. It seems like there's this huge positive upside to it, and we should be uh, moving forward with it, especially, as you mentioned, the need for electricity. As everyone is interested in buying an electric car, there's lots of talk of like, whoa, we need to hit the brakes here. The grid Mm -hmm. is not going to be able to support this, and how are we going to kind of future-proof that? Now, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, I think there is this this idea of nuclear waste and nuclear meltdown and the fear that comes with that. How has nuclear energy gotten safer over the last 30 years? I mean, so waste is a really, really important objection that comes up a lot. And of course, every energy technology, even renewables, produce waste. Um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, cast any dispersions uh, here. Nuclear waste fresh out of the reactor, unshielded, is absolutely deadly. You'd get a fatal dose within a minute of being exposed to it. That being said, it is this curious fact that no one has ever died from handling spent civilian nuclear waste in the last 60 years of, of nuclear energy. So, you know, how is that? Um, it's because it's actually fairly easy to manage. We remove it from the reactor underwater. It's cooled for four or five years and put into these concrete and steel dry casks. People talk about we have to store it for generations, for millions of years. 
in 40 years, 99.9% of the radioactivity um, has decayed. It's called exponential radioactive decay. And in 500 years, you could hold a spent can-do fuel bundle in your hands. So there's a lot of misconceptions out there um, regarding uh, nuclear waste. Um, and, and I think it's really been an error of the nuclear sector not to be more open about it and, you know, have the public interact with it. So I've, I've you know, been inside the waste storage facilities. They're basically like big Costco warehouses with these concrete and steel containers. I've touched them. I've had a dose meter on me. My dose was far lower than flying in an airplane, which I, I do far too often. Um, but it's things like that where we really need to, to demystify. Um, but, you know, the waste is, is a really interesting topic. And, um, again, it needs to be examined alongside other sources. I mean, I, you, you hear Quebec a lot. Um, the Parti Québécois uh, and the Bloc are, are quite anti-nuclear, and they talk about the waste issue. Well, you know, when they flooded the James Bay Hydro Project, they flooded an area the size of, of the state of Florida, and that released a huge amount of methylmercury as, as those organic compounds and trees and, and grasses and things um, dissolved and, and, and decayed. Um, that's a completely uncontained, poorly managed and quite deadly heavy waste stream, heavy metal waste stream. So, um, you know, once you put things into context and look at them holistically, um, you can make, I think, valid um, decisions about energy planning. And, you know, this kind of blanket, well, we're going to have a nuclear ban in D.C., I mean, I'm not I'm not in BC. I'm not part of the democracy voting out there, but I think it'd be a really important thing to reopen that debate um, and make it a fact based debate. Scott Johnson in for Jill Bennett, 604-280-9898, or you can email me Scott at CKNW.com, of course. How is your work life going and how do you feel about quiet quitting? Different than regular quitting, quiet quitting is where you basically just, you know. Mail it in. I think that's kind of the word that people have been using for it. And a new survey has found that two-thirds of Canadian employees are are doing this, like actively right now, quiet quitting. And here now to discuss is my guest, Mike Schechtman, a senior regional director for Robert Half Canada. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So tell me about quiet quitting. Am I getting that right? It's like just mailing it in, right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're bang on. You know, we're, we're seeing that um, this specific uh, term that was coined, uh, you know, where employees are, are feeling the feet and just maybe watching the clock, putting the really the bare minimum effort that's required. And, and the disengagement is uh, at an all-time high with some of these uh, folks. Why do you think uh, two-thirds, that feels like a lot, that many Canadians are doing this? It is. This specific report that came out of Gallup um, recognized and looked into North America as a, as, a, as a region and outlined that between quiet quitting and loud quitting, which is actively disengaged versus just not engaged as a whole, is a big cohort of, uh, of our workforce. Um, what, what we've seen is that, um, especially through a Robert Half survey that we conducted back in May, uh, a rise in burnout uh, and uh, what that specific survey actually shared with us is that 36% of respondents are burned out today uh, more than a year ago. Uh, and it's, uh, it's alarming because we're seeing that some of the external factors uh, are, are causing additional uh, stress on, on many individuals, which, uh, again, drives uh, disengagement uh, as well. Talk to me about those external factors. What do you think it is that's causing all this employee burnout? 
You know, there's a, a couple of uh, specific ones. Um, heavy workloads has been a, a massive contributor to uh, to burnout. Uh, well, we've seen it uh, with some uh, some headwinds that organizations and some of the tougher decisions that some companies have had to make over over the last uh, number of months uh, in terms of maybe uh, you know layoffs uh, in some specific uh, sectors like tech sectors. It's it's contributed to to additional projects that uh, people have had to take uh, on on their desk. Uh, Another piece is um, with the pendulum swinging, where people are coming into uh, the office a little bit more. It's causing additional stress for individuals. So uh, some contributed to the lack of communication and support from uh, leadership. Uh, also, is causing additional uh, contribution to people uh, feeling burned out. And then the final piece that uh, was shared with us specifically is that. Uh, some some of the organizational culture has seen erosion, so there's some toxicity that's uh, that's happening with some uh, with some uh, departments that uh, again is causing people to to feel disengaged and, and uninterested in uh, not so much the work but the workplace itself. Hmm. Yeah, it feels like COVID or the pandemic has played a big role in this. You mentioned people being required to go back into the workforce. I know a lot of people who ended up working from home and just sort of said that that was a brave new, like a whole new world getting to work from home and it was more productive. And then when they were asked to go back, they realized, yeah, I'm just going to find a different company where I get to work from home. Did, did, have you experienced that as well? We have seen that. I think, you know, for the most part, um, you know, individuals that have had the flexibility and uh, have been allotted and afforded the, the flexibility to, to choose when and where they work are are very much more content and are maybe less actively uh, looking for a new opportunity uh, if that's maybe their main motivation and factors to the point that some uh, actually shared that. Uh, if they were forced to go back into the office, they would look for for a new opportunity. So you, you're seeing some of those individuals that put that as their biggest uh, motivator, and even putting that ahead of a salary or compensation, uh, are are certainly not um, jumping uh, jumping ship or or even actively uh, looking for an opportunity. Uh, but I would say that uh, we've seen less and less of those opportunities out there because um, you know our organizations. Uh, are feeling that um, the, the, they see a great value in bringing people together to create a sense of a community. Uh, they're they're seeing that uh, when people are together, they're they're creating higher levels of uh, of efficiency and and uh, again trying to evolve their culture where it's uh, they can they can meet all stakeholders and uh, business partners' requirements uh, and needs. Hmm. Now on the quiet quitting, and this is people doing. Less, uh, less of the extra stuff, just kind of doing the the bare minimum, whatever is basically just required of them to get through the workday. Do you think that employers, management and bosses can see this like they're aware that their employees are doing less and quote unquote quiet quitting? Uh, there are signs that you can you can see it. And, and I think that, you know, one of the important things to recognize with quiet quitting is that uh, employee engagement doesn't mean that uh, that people are happy or are unhappy. Uh, and what it alludes to is that people that are engaged show that they understand what they do, that they are really um, are clear in terms of and how their work actually matters. And and for the most part, you know, leaders uh, and astute leaders will recognize that hey, somebody is 
uh, again, just putting in that bare minimum and may, maybe not raising their their arm uh, or hand to uh, to help um, maybe move uh, an agenda forward or or take part or or throw their arm, again uh, hand up to uh, take on additional projects uh, and are eager for that. So I think there's a level of recognition uh, that uh, many leaders are are aware of, and it's just so critical for for managers to. Uh, really be in the detail with each individual to understand what's actually motivating them and what actually would drive their engagement because every individual is going to have different motivations uh, when it comes to it. For some, it may be, um, you know, learning a new skills and upskilling their ability. For some, it's actually moving towards a leadership opportunity. Uh, For some, it may be community-related. And for others, it might be even connected to uh, DEI and, and, and sustainability. So, Again, uh, making sure that uh, as a leader, you're in the trenches with uh, with your team and leading by example is a, is a great way to uh, understand what's important for everybody on uh, on the team. Hmm, yeah, some great thoughts there um, going forward to combat this uh, this sort of quiet quitting. You think this is going to continue or do you think that we're going to get back to the place where people want to do more and are eager to do more? Or is that just kind of the ship has sailed and people are just going to keep doing this, do as little as they can? I, you know, I, th- I think that this is again, um, quiet quitting is not a, a new concept. It's been around for for a long, a long time. Uh, ultimately, uh, and and from a context perspective, engagement is actually in 2022 was an all time high, just based on the Gallup report that was put out. Uh, so, you know, what we need to just understand is just doing what we can within our vicinity to to create a better environment for, for our teams and, and create a platform where people can, can, can thrive. Because uh, ultimately, engagement does lead to higher productivity for people. Uh, people that are engaged will, will put in additional effort. Uh, it's just understanding what actually, uh, what's actually important to them. So uh, I think there's, um, you know, it's up to us uh, as leaders across the board to understand that. And I think that's, uh, that's a bit of a way forward. So. Uh, I'm I'm optimistic. I think that um, I think that there's uh, we can only go up from here, and it's and it's just uh, being able to navigate a very complex and, and uncertain time uh, as we head back um, and out of the pandemic, of course. So it will be very fascinating to see what the next uh, six months bring to uh, for all of us. 